0: But first up, one UK tabloid today, always prone to a bit of hyperbole, described it as Putin suffers hammer blow as UK and Canada team up in major boost to Ukraine's military. What were they talking about? Canada announced today that we will resume training Ukrainian soldiers in what had certainly been the shining light of our commitment to Ukraine in recent years. The mission known as Operation Unifier has already helped train more than 30,000 Ukrainian soldiers before all Canadian troops were withdrawn ahead of Russia's attack over the winter. Now, Defense Minister Anita Anand says Canada is sending military trainers to the UK to help teach Ukrainians how to fight invading Russian forces. She says up to 225 members of the Canadian Armed Forces will eventually be based in the UK for an initial period of four months. They will work alongside counterparts from Britain, of course, the Netherlands and New Zealand in training Ukrainian troops on the basics of soldiering.
1: When we paused our military training and capacity building operations in Ukraine under Operation Unifier in early February, I made a commitment to resume these operations whenever and wherever possible. The activities of our Canadian Armed Forces are going to be uh, relating to frontline combat, weapons handling, first aid, field craft, patrol tactics, and include the law of armed conflict, which is a mandatory course in the training session.
0: Defence Minister Anita Anand there, the first of up to three training cohorts, is scheduled to depart for a military base in southeast England on August the 12th. British forces began training Ukrainian soldiers to help in their fight against Moscow last month, with up to a total of 10,000 recruits arriving in the UK for specialist military training already this summer. Well, joining me now with more on this is Steve Sabin. He's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University and Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Well, the Daily Express is always one to uh, exaggerate a little bit, but Putin suffers hammer blow. It seems like quite the statement. But this is certainly good news for for the Ukrainian military.
1: Sure. I I think what it really reflects is a realization by everybody this war is not going to end anytime too soon. So these kinds of long-term efforts will have a payoff down the road, but it only makes sense if people expect that this wars could go on. So it's it's both good news and bad news. I think it's a good news in terms of what what the Ukrainians need, but it's a recognition that, that we're not going to see a resolution of this conflict anytime too soon.
0: Yeah, I guess in this sense, I mean this is not something that will have immediate benefits, right? This is looking ahead months.
1: Yeah, the idea of this is to train the next generation of soldiers. So it's not the folks who are currently on the front lines being pulled back to get additional training. It's the Ukrainians have been recruiting uh, you know, new soldiers, and they're going to get these skills that will help them, uh, you know, survive the battlefield. The, the minister Nanda mentioned uh, first aid. This is one of the things that the Ukrainians have done much better than the Russians. The Russians, in the first few months, there was a lot of stories about how, you know, they were essentially losing soldiers to to wounds that could have been, you know, dealt with. But the Ukrainians have. Committed partly because their, you know, their troops are a scarce resource, but they've committed more effort to to keeping their troops alive and and sending them back into the into the war if they can, and so that that that's one of the kinds of things that that we we are training them before the war, and so we're taking the same kinds of training packages that we were doing before the war and doing it again just a little further away.
0: I mean, when I was uh, watching what Ukraine had on the front lines back in the Donbass in 2014, it was far from a professional army at that point, or at least parts of it were far from a professional army. It feels like Operation Unifier, to some extent, though, has made a big difference in, its, in the professionalization, or at least the, you know, the continuing professionalization of Ukraine's army, and this uh, was just a continuation of that.
1: I think that's true. I, I don't want to give us too much credit because there are a lot of other actors involved. The the British were training uh, the Ukrainians. The Americans were training the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, uh, really, I mean, a lot of the responsibility for the success is in the Ukrainian hands. They they did they learned from 2014 and they were fighting from 2014 to 2022, and they didn't promote generals who were just friends of Zelensky. They promoted people who were successful on the battlefield. That's not inevitable. And so one of the hidden features of all this is that they solidified their civilian control of the military. They improved their Ministry of Defense so that way it was not just staffed with military officers, but with civilians who who, uh, were able to make the right decisions and and prepare them for what they saw as inevitable, and they turned out they were right. So what we did was we made a contribution to that effort, and uh, certainly the Ukrainians value that, and they're investing – you know, something like ten thousand soldiers—they're going to send off to the UK to get this kind of training. So they—they they see value in it. Uh,
0: from Russia's perspective, I mean, does this, in some senses, um, help maintain the idea that there is a united front here supporting Ukraine?
1: Well, I think we—you know—besides the minor, you know, it's, you know, differences here and there, I think we've maintained a pretty united front all the way through. Where you know we we have announcements every couple weeks from a variety of countries about new weapon systems or additional ammunition and all the rest, and then we have Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Uh, most countries ratified very very quickly. The United States just had their the ratification vote either today or yesterday, and and Canada was amongst the first to to ratify. So I think w- there's a whole lot of unity that they weren't expecting, and I don't I have we haven't really seen any holes in this, but this is you know, helps reinforce that, certainly.
0: Canada, I mean, it feels like we don't have a whole lot to offer Ukraine. I mean, I think from the beginning, we realized that our weapons stores are pretty bare. We don't have much to offer in that way. Uh, we've been trying to offer financial uh, aid and so forth. But training troops seems to be one of the things Canada can do
1: here. That's right. That We have a good record of doing it, uh, that our troops have been training other countries' troops for years. But... Uh, particularly with Ukraine, we had eight years of experience, more or less, seven or eight years of experience before the war started, uh, and they saw value in this. That is the, that the Ukrainians see value in it. So, I, 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 and the British are, want to work with us on it, so they recognize our contribution. So, this is what we can do. You know, we we don't have the same sort of storehouses the Americans have. We don't have HIMARS systems lying around that we can ship over, and even those, the Americans only shipped over like fourteen. Um, but we've given what we could, and maybe we'll go back through our armories and find additional artillery batteries or, or whatnot. But this has added value, that they need to replenish their troops for the long war, and this kind of training can help them do that.
0: Any concerns at all? Any concerns with the timeline? Any concerns with the commitment?
1: Not really. I, I, the, the big surprise to me was that it was in, happening in Britain. I, w- I would assume that Operation New Fire was going to start again at some point, maybe in Poland or Someplace close by, um, but you know we've operated in Britain. We've operated with the Brits before, so that's not a, not a real issue. And it's there's no way that you know, it's highly unlikely that the Russians would do anything to retaliate against this because that would be a, a massive escalation. So this is a really low. It would have been low risk for us to do it in Poland or or, or Hungary or Romania. It's even lower risk doing it in in, in Britain. And uh, you know the Russians might levy some more sanctions against us, but. We've already antagonized them a lot, so I don't really see it moving the needle much there. Uh, The big thing at the end of the day is the one thing that we worry about when we're training people is who we're training. And uh, so there was some discussion before about whether we were training units uh, in Ukraine that had histories or symbols or whatever that was tied to the far right. Um, I don't know if there's going to be vetting of these individuals uh So that way we're not getting people who are from the far right um so that that's the one risk uh but there's far better civilian control of these folks than let's say the the Iraqis we were training when we were in Iraq training people you know there were a lot of people you know there were the question of what they would do after our, they got our training that was a huge question um and the Iraqi government was using their army in ways that were could was often pretty inappropriate and, and pretty awful. Uh, whereas in this case, the Ukrainians are not going to be sending these soldiers to do anything besides fight the Russians. They, they just don't have any time in their hands to do any kind of side gigs like oppress you know, ethnic groups within Ukraine. So I, I think that risk is, is very minimal.
0: Yeah, it seems, it seems like the risk, at least the political risk here, is pretty low. Coming up, um, speaking with Stephen Sademan, he's the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. We're talking about uh, Defence Minister Anita Anand's announcement today that Operation Unifier, as it's known, that used to take place in eastern Ukraine, uh, ended uh, temporarily when uh, Canadian troops left just prior to Russia's invasion of that country. will resume in Britain in about three weeks. They're going to start sending Ukrainian soldiers over there for training. This is uh, British led, but uh, Canada is taking part as well, um, and expected Uh, perhaps up to three cohorts of Ukrainian soldiers to receive this training. As uh, Stephen pointed out, this is a reflection of the fact that uh, all sides now believe this war will continue, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about that. What does the next six months look like? Uh, Because this war is shifting and changing and continues to. uh, We'll look at that after this. Uh, If we return the turbine and gas flows actually return to higher levels, that would be a very good outcome. But at the end of the day, if we return the turbines and that did not affect gas flows, it essentially is calling Putin's bluff. He cannot blame Canada. He cannot blame uh, Western Europe. Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson there in front of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee today. Two federal cabinet ministers, including Defence Minister or uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, rather face questions today about Canada's decision to return those six turbines to Germany with an exemption to Russian sanctions. The turbines belong to Russian State-owned Energy for a giant Gazprom. They're part of a natural gas pipeline that supplies Germany with fuel. Conservative MPs uh, on uh, the committee questioned Wilkinson and Julie about whether the exemption weakens the global sanctions regime and indirectly funds the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, My guest this half hour is Stephen Sabin from Carleton University. Uh, The specifics of that controversy aside, uh, this ability for Russia to continue to use energy to fund this war, how important a factor does that remain now?
1: Well, the Russian economy is you know based on very few uh, money-making enterprises and, and energy is obviously at the top of the list uh, the war has uh, increased the price of energy so they've been able to pay the, their bills more or less uh, the challenge is not really right now the challenge is next winter when their leverage goes up vis-a-vis the Europeans because things will get cold and and the Europeans will want to get their gas and they've made a series of choices over the past few years that have made things harder themselves uh, only this past week or so, you've seen the Germans finally start to think a little bit about not scrapping their nuclear power plants, which they, you know, they, they responded pretty hastily um, after the uh, emergency, the uh, accident in Japan in 2011, to close down their nuclear power plants. But that made them more dependent on the Russians and and now with climate change suggesting that that might have been a bad choice anyway it's, it's you know becoming more dependent on the russians is is always a bad idea so i think i think this is going to get a lot of attention i don't know what the germans are going to do ultimately about this
0: Yeah, when you look ahead over the next six months, you get the sense that Ukraine are going to continue to try to push uh, to try and make some gains back in the south. Uh, But we're heading into what feels like, you know, into the fall, into the winter. Once again, things are going to start to shift. And you get the sense the Russians are going to try to squeeze the West over energy, as you're mentioning, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: and that Ukraine will try to will try to make some gains now, at least attempt to make some gains in areas where Russia is stretched. Uh, It it feels like this war is, is not going anywhere and it could get worse again soon.
1: Well, the interesting thing is is the arms race between the Russians and the Ukrainians. uh, The Russians had a lot of capability, but the Ukrainians have gotten some stuff lately, such as the Heimar system I mentioned earlier, that they've used very intelligently. They've been very, very smart about using this scarce resource to take out Russian ammunition dumps, and that has made it very hard for the Russians to play their big card, which is they've had more artillery, uh, which they've used very, very uh, bluntly to try to seize some territory. So... In the days ahead, it may be harder for the Russians to use that tool, and we may see the Ukrainians take back more territory, particularly in the south, which should allow them to have a better grasp of their of their waterfront, which might mean that they can export more grain. Um, I do think that the Russians are at their very limits uh, in terms of their ability to expand, and they ne- they still haven't shown any real cleverness about how to fight this war. And I don't think they're getting smarter about it. They've learned some of it from some of their mistakes. Uh, but the Ukrainians have been one step ahead of them or two steps ahead of them most of the way. And I don't expect that to change.
0: And I imagine the news today of the further training just shows the Ukrainian military that are still committed to uh, to gaining the, at least keeping an upper hand against what seems to be a pretty uh, scattered and, and disorganized Russian military right now, which has come as a surprise, obviously.
1: Well, the Russian military has been, you know, it goes back again to something I harp on, which is how well are they controlled by the civilians? And we've had people being promoted to the Russian military based on their loyalty to Putin. Uh, and they've been allowed to be very corrupt, which we saw the consequences of that, where the Russians went to war in February with not, with not the best equipment and not with the best training because a lot of that material was siphoned off to enrich people. Whereas the Ukrainians for the past eight years have been really training very hard for it. They made a lot of the smart decisions as the war started not to lose a lot of their assets in the first few days. And what's striking these days is you still have a Ukrainian Air Force flying and you still have a Russian Air Force not willing to fly that much over over Ukraine. And I think if you ask most experts at the outset of the war, they would have expected the Russians to to establish air supremacy. Uh, that's the American way of war, and I guess we projected a bit much, but they haven't been able to do that, and that's allowed the Ukrainians to do all kinds of things to make the make the Russians live and miserable. And uh, the Russians don't have anything really to fight for here; uh, they're they're fighting for a war of expansion. And a lot of the people who are fighting don't don't realize why they're at war, whereas the Ukrainians are fighting to defend their homes. And the Russians have done everything to t- to tell the Ukrainians that they need to you know fight for every yard because. The Russians have engaged in rape, they've engaged in murder, and they've deported people back to Russia. So they've only done everything they could to increase the will for the Ukrainians to fight.
0: Yeah, the the battle for hearts and minds has clearly been something lost uh, on the Russian side. Stephen Sadman, thanks so much for your time tonight.
1: My pleasure, Ben.